Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. This is Mark 9, 14 through 29. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening, Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. And then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. And the boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Afterward, when Jesus was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out that evil spirit? Jesus replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. God. Thank you. Uh, Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, thank you for your presence here, and we ask you to wake us up to your presence here. Um, I pray that in these next few minutes, uh, pray for the courage to talk about and listen to and think through some um, tricky and confusing things. I pray uh, that we would uh, not just believe your presence to be with us, but to feel your presence with us. we love you, and we're glad to be with you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so this is our second week in a new series uh, for the rest of the summer that we are so fired up about called Extraordinary. If you missed uh, last week, uh, it'll be, it's on the podcast, so go check it out. Chad talked about fasting on Father's Day, which I think is a really bold move, um, and he did great. Um, but uh, essentially what we wanted to do is spend our summer taking a deep and intentional look at uh, prayer and fasting. Um, and, uh, and, and for the next, we did fasting last week, 
So for the next few weeks, we're really going to focus in on prayer. Uh, we, we pray for a lot of reasons. Um, one, because Jesus told us to, which is a good reason to do something. Um, but but uh, he told us to pray because it is good for the world and it's good for us. It not only deepens our connection with the Father, but scientists tell us that prayer actually has physiological impact on our bodies and on our brains and on our emotional health. On It has um, like measured impact on feelings of isolation and loneliness. Um, it has, uh, there's a statistic that says people who pray 30 minutes a day have lower blood pressure, reduced stress and anxiety, and better focus. The ADD in me is like, seriously? Um, also, 30 minutes? Um, <laughs> we, uh, scripture, uh, what we see calling uh, this series extraordinary because uh, when we look at the scripture, uh, what we see is that um, the scriptures and like throughout history is that uh, big moves of God are almost always, if not always, uh, um, led to by extraordinary prayer and fasting. They begin with extraordinary prayer and fasting. Um, so prayer, it, it opens us to knowing more of God, but it also deepens our understanding and our revelation of his heart for us and his heart uh, for the world. Uh, prayer, it grows us and it wakes us up to God's heart and his activity in the kingdom while at the same time developing us into an emotionally spiritual health. Uh, and we take that pretty serious around here. We believe that our emotional health or our spiritual health will not outpace our emotional health. And a big part of emotional health is uh, prayer. The science around the impact of prayer on mental health is legitimately astounding. Um, the, the, there's a, a group of folks called Casey Underground. Uh, they're a church planting and resourcing movement that we're both friends with and fans of. And they say it like this when they talk about uh, God's heart for prayer in us. They say, Jesus wants prayer to encircle our entire life with his peace, his provision, and his sense of presence. And so each week, um, we're going to talk about prayer. And, and not just that, we're going to talk about prayer, but then we're actually going to practice it. It's going to be a summer of, like, lecture and lab in here. Uh, I say this a lot um, because that's what you do when things are really important to you. You say them over and over again. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time in church learning about um, how I'm supposed to be or who I'm supposed to be. But I have spent very little time in church actually practicing those things. And so I have like deep passion around us as a people practicing the things that we talk about. And so um, we will do that uh, here. We're going to create, create opportunities where we not only hear about the things of Jesus, but we practice them. We try them. Uh, try is a huge word for us at Springbrook. Uh, I think it was like January. Chad preached this sermon on try. If you were here, you may remember it. And um, for a lot of you that we've heard from, and I know for me, it was just this life-changing thing. And we found this word, this word try. And uh, we, we believe so much in try, we had cards printed. And then we put them on your chairs. And we put try real big because we want you to see that this word uh, matters to us. And here's what we mean by try. When we say try, we mean practice. We mean experimenting. It's, it's experimenting within the kingdom of God with the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about uh, with try. Try means that there's room to explore and room to fail and room to play. Uh, try, and this is so, so, so important. Try is not about perfection or performance or earning. Like we do not believe in any way that the things of God and his kingdom are ours to earn. We actually don't think you can. We do not think that you can earn any of the things uh, of God and his kingdom. What we think is that the things of God and his kingdom are not ours to earn. They are ours to try. And those are really different words. 
Uh, earning is striving, and trying is playing, experimenting. It's a little more fun. Uh, trying is not how we receive love in God's kingdom. It's what we do because we are confident of the umbrella of love uh, that we safely exist under in the kingdom of God. Love that can never be earned but is always free. Love that, as we say a lot around here, is not moody or capricious and knows no season of change. A love where it's safe to try, to explore, to play. So every week um, we will talk about stuff, and then we're going to give you a resource card. Um, you have the first one in your seats today. Um, and, um, and so all of them will have a practice, that, uh, like a try practice. I think we called it five minutes of try because pretty much all of them could be done in five minutes. And so our hope is that you would take this card, and every day for five minutes you would try uh, this thing. We're going to uh, try it at the end uh, of our time together. Um, so, uh, and then you can get a, a card every week. If you miss a week, we'll, we'll, we won't like not give you the card. Um, you can have it. So, so that's, that, that, that's the series. Um, I want to jump into what we're going to talk about uh, today. And today we're going to talk about a biggie uh, when it comes to prayer and faith. Um, and that is anger, doubt, and the silence of God. Um, Oswald Chambers, who you may have heard of my utmost for his highest, uh, he was a Scottish evangelist and preacher and writer, and um, he made a huge impact uh, on 20th century Christianity through this book, My Utmost for His Highest, and he says this. He says, until we come face to, I think there's a slide for this, Misty, um, until we come face to face with the deepest, darkest facts of life without damaging our view of God's character, we do not know him yet. That's a big one. Until we come face to face with the darkness, with the doubt, with the silence, with the anger, we don't fully know God. If you have had seasons of that, seasons of doubt or anger or silence that you've come out of, then my guess is that quote reads very true to you. Because there are parts of God that are unknowable until they're doubted. And there are parts of God that are unknowable uh, outside of his silence. Um, I, I was listening to a podcast uh, recently, and they had this guy who's like a science expert, and uh, he was on, he was talking about a surgery called a corpus colostomy. Has anyone had one? No, don't, please don't raise your hand. This is HIPAA. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> panic. <laughs> this is why I should not have a microphone. Uh, corpus colostomy, it's a surgery that came about in the 1940s, and it was a treatment for epilepsy. Um, and essentially what you do is you would cut through the corpus callosum, um, which essentially is a connector between, I'm very much oversimplifying this, sorry, all medical professionals, um, which is uh, a connector in between the right side of your brain and the left side of your brain. And the reason that you would sever it is so that uh, epileptic activity would not flow from one side of the brain to the other. And, um, and though the surgery has certainly evolved since, in the 40s it was like incredibly dangerous. Um, and, and though it's evolved since the 40s, um, it is still used to treat epilepsy, I think in really severe cases. Um, but uh, uh, the, the risks are still pretty substantial, as you can imagine, if you are cutting off a communication piece between two sides of the brain. Um, but uh, there, there are lots of side effects, and it can impact your language, it can impact cognition, it can impact just a, a lot of things. But um, to me, the most interesting side effect of this is something called alien hand syndrome. Have you ever heard of this? Um, okay, alien hand, hand syndrome is where one of your limbs acts completely and entirely of its own volition, not controlled by like your... Um, 
present brain, like the brain that you are present to. So, for example, one story I read was about this woman, and she said she would try to light a cigarette with her dominant hand, and as soon as she would get it lit, her non-dominant hand would rip it out of her mouth and stub it out. Isn't that funny? She also, uh, she also played piano, and she said she would go to practice piano, and she would play, and her dominant hand would play, and her non-dominant hand would just hover over the keys. And I was like, gosh, I wish I knew about this when I took piano lessons as a kid, because I would be like, alien hand syndrome, so crazy, can't practice. Um, I would have totally gotten out of it. Uh, so look that up. There's some fun and interesting stories. Um, this phenomenon, so basically this phenomenon of alien hand syndrome happens, and so scientists, well, want to study it, and it becomes something to study. And um, so there's this neuroscientist at the Center for Brain and Cognition in UC San Diego who did a study specifically on alien hand syndrome. But his question was, not just will your hand do what it wants to do, but do your two sides of your brain have uh, different desires? And can your hands, like, show that your, the, your left side and your right side have different thoughts or different desires or different beliefs or things like that? And so um, not only are they doing two different things, but do they want two different things? Like, does half your brain want to be a smoker and half of your brain not want to be a smoker? Or half play piano and half uh, not play piano? And so um, in this study, the scientists asked um, uh, uh, different questions to see if the left brain and right brain responded with different answers. Um, and one of the questions that the scientists asked was, are you a Christian? And they would do it like your dominant hand would write and your non-dominant hand would use like Scrabble tiles. Um, and so he asked, are you a Christian? And he claims, and I'm going to be really honest, if you Google the study, there's a lot of debate about if it was good science and if it was done correctly and if it's even true. But if you believe this guy, uh, he uh, claims that he had a patient he was studying who when he asked, are you a Christian, uh, with his dominant hand, he wrote down yes. And with the Scrabble tiles, he said no. And I was a a really confusing thing. Like, uh, half of this person's brain was Christian. The neuroscientist, who's an atheist, uh, made a terrible joke that half of his brain was going to heaven and half of his brain was going to hell, which is awful. But, um, but, but it was this really confusing thing. And I was reading, again, there's debate around this study, but when I was reading about it this week and when I heard about it, I was like, yeah, I feel that way sometimes. Like, I feel that way sometimes. Like, there's this big huge part of me that believes, believes, believes in the realness and the authority and the goodness and the transcendence of God. And then there are these parts of me that feel a little bit split, that struggle to believe anything at all. And some of you just heard that and you feel like you just took a breath. And some of you just heard that and you're afraid your preacher's brain is going to hell. Uh, Brenna Manning says it better than I could. This is how I, I read this. I remember reading this sentence years ago, and I was like, he gets me. He says this. When I get honest, I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest, and I still play games. Aristotle says that I am a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. Uh, in our text uh, for today that Chad got us started on last week, we meet a man who uh, comes to Jesus, comes to find Jesus full of faith. He comes to find Jesus so that his son can be healed. And he's a man who finds out that Jesus is on a mountain with his friends. And so he asks the other disciples for help and healing 
they're his boy, and, uh, but when he, when he finds that they can't, this man ends up walking into a crowd uh, that feels very chaotic at the beginning of our story, uh, disappointed because it didn't work. But then he sees Jesus, who's come down from the mountain, and Jesus comes out, and he's questioning the chaos. What's going on? And then this man dares to ask Jesus to do what the disciples couldn't do. And like just in six verses, it's like this up-down journey of faith. With this man, which I'm sure is pretty marking of his entire life. So when Jesus asks him if he had the faith for this moment, if he has the faith for this healing, he replies so beautifully and so honestly. He says, yes, I do, but help my unbelief. Read for that. Part of me does. Part My, my dominant brain does. Part of me does. And I can't think of a more honest or human moment in all of the scriptures, a moment where this man stands before the healer and says, I want to be here. I want to believe this. I want all of me to be present to what I believe that you will do. Will you please help the part of me that isn't? We all struggle uh, with doubt and its effects at one time or another. Uh, Some of you are nodding your heads because uh, you've been there or you are there. If that isn't your experience in your walk with Jesus, then uh, to quote Clancy from my favorite movie, City Slickers, that's because the day ain't over yet. (laughs) It's just kind of part of it. Doubt is a universal human experience in a life of faith, whether it's once or occasional or seasonal or for some of us constant. And it's something that we should notice and it's something we must notice, something we must see, something we must acknowledge Uh, There are two really powerful encounters in the story that we read today. One is with a boy who has been tortured by what he's describing as like seizures. And the other is of the father who had to watch it, right? The father who has has had to watch his boy uh, and still tried to have faith, but has certainly watched with doubt and despair and anger at God's silence and not healing his son. It's what makes his conversation with Jesus so powerful, I think. When Jesus says, do you have faith faith for this? And the man replies, part of me does. Please help the other part. It's because he has a whole lifetime of this is what I've watched. It is torture to watch someone you love be tortured. And then Jesus, he doesn't shame or condemn the man. Jesus shames and condemns something, but it's the evil spirit. It's not the man. He shames the evil spirit. He says, come out of this boy and never touch him again. I think one of, again, the reasons this is so powerful is because Jesus makes space in this moment for the entire man, for his whole story, for all that he thought and all that he believed and all that he doubted. That's what Jesus does. That's what he's always doing. He is always making room for all of our being. Growing up, I had some, like, harebrained idea that Jesus only wanted part of me, that Jesus only wanted, like, the good part of me or the obedient part of me or the part of me that believed. But that isn't the story here. Robert Capon, a favorite writer of mine, says, There is room for squirming within the firm grasp of the Father. Jesus, he makes room for the whole man. But this is important. He also doesn't leave him there. He makes room for him. But he doesn't leave him there. He makes room for the whole man. He makes room for his belief. And he makes room for his unbelief. And then Jesus, he responds in mercy with the very thing that will grow this man's faith. Jesus, he heals his son fully and miraculously. 
And Jesus, he offers this man uh, in his doubt a moment to look back at for the rest of his life of till now God was faithful moment. Uh, we learn in the story that, that, that doubt is not a place to run and hide from Jesus. It's a place to invite him into and to ask for help. And I love that this story is in the Bible. Like, I love it. And it isn't the only one where doubt is acknowledged and held before the Father. It's one of the things that I think makes the Bible so fascinating and makes me really, really like it. It's because within the Bible, within its pages, are resources on how to engage not only with the things that we believe, but also with the places where we struggle to believe. Uh, within the Bible are stories and resources and verse and chorus and song on how to engage our doubts with the things of God and, and even with the Bible itself. Based uh, in the scriptures are men and women who doubt God and are angry with God and hear the silence of God. They exist throughout the whole thing. And we have their words. Words that can resource us when we find ourselves in a similar place. Words that have the ability to enter into our doubt and inject it with faith. It's like the scriptures acknowledge that all of this is quite hard to believe sometimes. And, and so within it are the resources to meet us in our exact places of doubt and struggle. Like the man today, uh, plenty of us in the room struggle to believe God for healing for ourselves or healing for other people. Uh, there are psalms like uh, Psalm 73, which is about the doubts that come when you, have you ever had a conversation with someone who you think is way smarter than you, and they don't believe what you believe, and then you're like, oh no, am I just believing all this because I'm not as smart as them? <laughs> psalm 73 is about that, like about the doubts that come when you uh, intersect with things like that. There's Psalm 13 that's a, about the doubt that comes when God is silenced, when you look around your whole world and you can't find him anywhere, and they wrote a song about it. We have the disciples on the boat, and they're so mad because uh, uh, the storm is coming, and their experience is t so terrifying. They, they're struggling to believe that Jesus could even care for them. I've been there. In the scriptures, doubt is not covered, and it is not discarded, but it is experienced and spoken of and sung about. And while uh, the Bibles are filled with humanity and doubt, what is also true is that the Bible uh, never uh, just asks people to linger in it. It confronts it head on, injects it with faith head on. Jesus is always speaking faith into doubt. He's always speaking faith into disbelief, into disillusionment, into deconstruction. He doesn't shame doubt, and he doesn't sweep it under the rug. Instead, he acknowledges it and, again, injects it kindly and sometimes wildly with faith. And doubt is uncomfortable, that's for certain, but it isn't something to be ashamed of because in the scriptures it is fertile ground for faith. Uh, Frederick Breitner calls uh, doubt faith, or, uh, the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> it's the thing that gets it going. Uh, I was listening to Tim Mackey. Uh, he's the Bible Project. If you've heard of the Bible Project, we love it. He's wonderful. And he was talking about this, and he talked about having growing pains as a, as a kid, that he would wake up in the middle of the night, and his legs would be, like, seizing from growing pains. I see a lot of men in the room nodding. Do girls have this, too? I didn't ever grow, you can tell. So uh, I didn't have this experience. But, um, but, you know, growing pains. And basically what he's saying, he was like, it literally hurts to grow right? It, it, it it's physically painful uh, to grow. And I think what happens in faith and belief in our relationship with Jesus is very similar to that. Uh, some of you are at a place where your explanations or your way of reading the Bible or your thought patterns, they just aren't working anymore. And that hurts. 
And that also doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. I think it means you're growing. And it hurts. Faith and belief, they are living in active things, which means that they are always growing and they're always shifting and they're always changing. That's what living things do. Uh, in his book, Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, um, which I can't recommend high enough, uh, his main character is Jaber Crow. And Jaber Crow is a pastor and he begins to wrestle with all of these questions about doubt. And um, he questions everything from the rescue of God to does prayer really work and change God's mind? Or what happens if two like good people who love Jesus pray for the exact opposite things? Who wins? And, and he's asking all this. And basically he ends up in this spiral of doubt and questions. Ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll just assume yes. Um, and then this spiral, it leads him to where spirals tend to lead you. It leads him to a place of silence before God. He says that his questions had moved his prayers beyond confrontation into difficulty and then nearer to silence. And then it's there in that silence that Jaber Crow has this realization. And he says, by then I wasn't just asking questions. I was being changed by them. Doubt is a gateway to growth. And growth is uncomfortable, but spiritual growth always leads to faith. And if any of this sounds like I'm being flaky or flippant about doubt, I'm really not. I, I believe that doubt uh, should be something that we see that alerts us to an opportunity for greater faith. And those places, growth places, they just aren't something we're supposed to hide from or be ashamed of. They're places to get curious about and to follow in the name of growth and in the name of faith. They aren't the antithesis, they're the gateway. So how do we respond when we see doubt in our lives or in the lives of people that we love? Uh, if you're like me, when it happens, you just full-on panic. Just, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Like, I'm a preacher. I'm going to lose my job. This is it. Or it happens to someone else, and it's like, oh, no, that's the end for them. Like, it's over. You know, just... <laughs> Panic, but panic is not the right response to doubt. Uh, it, it really isn't. We we actually don't see Jesus panic over doubt. Uh, the right response to doubt is curiosity. It's curiosity, curiosity, and confession, and sometimes repentance. These are healthy responses to doubt, not panic. I say this a lot, but uh, doubt, like so many things here, uh, it, it, it is best seen by taking a few steps out and looking at a wider view of it. Doubt, when you're right up on it, is terrifying. And when you can take a few steps back, you start to see it as a, a, a part of the story of growth and part of the story of faith. It is a good thing to take a few steps back from it. It calms us down. And it allows us to get curious about it. Uh, by getting curious and acknowledging and confessing our doubts and struggles, we make room for faith to come in and shift us and grow us and change us. Part of growing means taking on new things and leaving behind the old things that no longer work for us. That is a natural path of growth, not something to feel guilty about. A lifelong apprenticeship to Jesus will require us to rethink, and it will require us to reimagine, and it will require us to rework some of what we think and what we practice and what we believe. One of the challenging parts about being a preacher and talking about doubt is you want to say every single thing you've ever heard about doubt ever. Um, but... I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm going to stop here, sort of. Um, I still have way more words, but I really do want to spend our last few minutes practicing, and I, I want to talk just for a minute uh, in that practice about um, one of the things that I think that we can, can do uh, about our own doubt. And if you are waiting for me to give you a secret equation for how to end your doubt, I, I don't have one. Don't wait. I'm so sorry. Uh, but I do have some thoughts. 
Um, Tim Mackey, again, the Bible Project guy that I think is wonderful, he says that uh, God's absence is the exact place where we're supposed to look for his presence. God's absence is precisely the place where we look for his presence. And when, when he talks about it, he goes back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this changed my life, really. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he's betrayed or arrested or crucified, Judas, or Judas, whoop, that was a big old slip. Um, <laughs> Judas does show up there, but not this way. Um, before he is betrayed, crucified, and arrested, Jesus takes James and John and Peter, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Uh, and it's truly, if, if you read it, um, it is truly this harrowing scene where, where we see this moment of Jesus sitting in the silence and the absence of God. And if I'm really honest with you, it is a scene I have skipped over almost every time I've ever read it because it is so harrowing and so deep and so dark. He's being crushed by the weight of what's about to happen to him, and he's crying out that he does not want to do it. And it's in this silence and in this absence that we see Jesus do two things. This is, this is my thought. It's like, what do we do when we doubt? Let's go to when Jesus experienced the absence of God. What does he do? He does two things. Uh, he goes to his friends, and then he prays. First thing he does, he goes to his spiritual community. Community is a very good place to go and doubt. Uh, to trusted people who are, and this is a very key part of it, also apprentices to Jesus, who are willing to enter into the absence with you. It is a good place to go. It is also a risky place to go. In this moment in Jesus' life, full disclosure, does not go well for him. He goes to his friends and they are asleep. Twice. <laughs> so it doesn't go super well. I've been somewhere similar. Sometimes you go to friends with doubt, and maybe they don't fall asleep while you're talking, but they're like, oh, just believe. Right? Or they have some sort of like, or they look at you like, uh-oh, you're going to hell or going to get fired. Um, that's probably just me in here. But, you know, um, inviting people in is risky, but it is good, particularly when you invite the right people in to your vulnerable places in this. And then the second thing he does when he finds his friends asleep is Jesus goes, uh, uh, he searches for God in the absence in prayer. I think this is huge. He cries out to the one whose absence is most felt because it is in the absence of God that we must search for him. So here's what I want to do uh, with our time left uh, today. I want to try a combo of these things because we're here and we're community and I want to pray. Um, so uh, our practice today, if you want to grab those cards, our practice today is called a breath prayer. Some of you may have tried it. Some of you may... Uh, think I'm a lunatic for telling you to try it. Uh, but breath prayer, honestly, it's an ancient form of prayer. Uh, like it goes back, the first recorded time I think we have is the third century. Uh, but I think you could argue that so much, so many of the prayers in the scriptures are actually breath prayers. Um, uh, it's one of those practices that I think is worth committing to for your entire life because it is so easy and so simple and so fruitful. And we're doing this because for me, breath prayer has been um, the place I find Jesus when I doubt him the most. Uh, because I need something so simple that I can do over and over and over again until it opens a gateway into faith. So uh, what you do is you choose two very simple phrases to meditate on, and then you inhale and exhale your way through them. That's why it's called breath prayer, because of the inhale and exhale. So um, in seasons of doubt and silence, sometimes all you have are the most simple words. And so taking a small, simple phrase and breathing it in and breathing it out, uh, something just happens. It starts to take up residence inside your soul and inside your guts, inside 
said, those parts of the brain that are hard to access, the parts that don't, or don't want you to be a smoker or whatever, like that part of the brain. And so as you breathe, you start to believe, sometimes quickly or sometimes if you're like me, it takes days and days and days of trying the exact same thing when this ounce of faith starts to get born. So um, there's a few examples. If you turn on the back, there's a few examples of breath prayers that come from the scripture. But the one we're going to do today, the most ancient form of it, the most common form is called the Jesus prayer. If you grew up Catholic, you're like, oh, I know that one. Um, And it's this, uh, that you would inhale, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And then you exhale, have mercy on me. If you notice, the inhale is kind of long. That's on purpose. (laughs) Inhale, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and exhale, uh, have mercy on me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this all together. I'm just going to bless. We'll practice it real quick. And then I'm going to bless it and pray for it. And then we won't do five minutes of try today because it feels like this is something you should uh, work your way into. But we'll do like a minute and a half or so. And it's just going to be, Dana will come up and, or whoever wants to, (laughs) will come up and play some music. And um, if you live with Daniel when you do your breath prayers, he does play music during that. I'm so sorry you don't all live with him. But it is, maybe that's why my faith grows so much in this. So, um, But, uh, so, so I'll bless it. And then it's just going to be quiet. And this is your time. If you want to do this one, the Jesus prayer, if you find another one on the back that you like better, try that. Um, if you want to make up your own, try that. This is really your time. If you don't want to do any of this and you think it's creepy, then some moments of silence. You're welcome. Um, but th- we'll just, we'll do it all together. So let's practice real quick. Let's just take in a big, deep breath. Because some of times we forget how to do that. So take one in. And let it out. Okay, this time kind of practice in your brain as you take in Jesus Christ, Son of God. And as you exhale, have mercy on me. So that's what we're doing. So I'm just going to pray and bless it and then we'll be quiet. So Father, we come. Holy Spirit, we believe that you're with us and we ask you in these next few moments as we breathe words that we want to believe are true. Many of us believe are true and some of us are just wanting so desperately to believe are true. Will you and your spirit come and inhabit our breath? And as you do that, will you build our faith? We believe that faith comes from you and by you. And so we as people all together turn to you and ask you for faith.